just want to get to some of your comments on political bias or perceived political bias. Uh, hi, Karen, re-media bias, you say ignore opinion pieces. Well, when New Zealand's major newspaper runs seven out of eight of their regular opinion pieces written by ex-National Party ministers and current ACT ministers, then you cannot ignore opinion pieces, add in Radio ZB, and you have extraordinary bias, says Bill. And Carol Webb in Whanganui says, um, did you notice that the first two items on the 10pm news that preceded your show were, one, National Deputy Leader Nicola Willis saying reduction in COVID isolation periods should have happened sooner, and two, National Defence Spokesperson Jerry Brownlee saying sanctions against Russian interests should have happened sooner. I rest my case. Cheers, Carol. But does that actually constitute media bias, Carol, or is that just reporting What's been said? You know, is that just reporting the news? Uh, and it just so happened that they were two national uh, people. Doing, and uh, this one says, definitely think there is political bias in the media. Most journalists on RNZ, TVNZ and TV3 display a bias in favour of Labour in general. And Jacinda specifically, just compare interviews of the last few years with opposition leaders compared to the PM. It's very disappointing. Jessica Much Mackay's partner is one of the PM's protection officers and she obviously displays obvious bias. I don't know about that and I can't uh, ascertain whether that's correct or not. So um, a a lot of um, differing opinions there all over the place and I know somebody who's going to (laughs) enjoy this and that's Hayden Donnell from Midweek Media Watch. Kia ora Hayden. Kia ora Karen. So much feedback on that question. (laughs) Yeah, well... uh... (laughs) Uh, we can get to it later, but the heralds, the, the heralds editors, uh, got similar feedback. Uh, yes, on, I bet they when did. They, when they fronted their readers on this uh, kind of question as well, it's a hot topic. But we'll, let's go to this uh, the, a, a, gra- <laughs> a graph crime by NZME. Yes. What is a graph crime? Well, I don't know. The, I think it's the worst type of crime. I'm look. To be honest, I've I've invented that terminology. Graph crime, graph crime. I'm not sure what the RNZ style is on the pronunciation of that. Uh, but this graph crime was committed by National MP Shane Retty in his weekly column for the Northern Advocate, which is an NZ, NZ Me paper along with the Herald and outlets like News Talk ZB. Uh, it's kind of hard to communicate a graph crime over. Radio, due to their visual nature, but uh, just to try and explain this one, just picture in your mind, uh, Retty was alleging that hospital admissions for intentional self-harm have gone up since the start of COVID in 2020. And to illustrate that, he used two bar graphs. And so one was from February 2019 to February 2020, and that showed uh, sort of a a moderate increase in the number of admissions for intentional self-harm, and then one from March 2020 to June 2021, uh, showing a much sharper rise in hospital admissions. What was the crime? Well, well, the, the... there was multiple problems with these graphs, numerous problems. So, I mean, they were inconsistent. They're all over the place. The axes were all wrong. The time periods were different. But the main thing that was the problem was that the data, uh, it just didn't provide an accurate reflection of what actually took place. And so reporters for other outlets, including newsrooms, Mark Dalder and stuff's Henry Cook, plotted the real hospital admissions data for intentional self-harm, and they showed that there had been kind of a negligible increase, if any, in the number of hospital admissions for intentional self-harm since the advent of COVID. And I guess the real story is actually that these hospital admissions have stayed depressingly the same for years and years without going down, despite us (laughs) 
governments promising to address these kinds of problems. Uh, the, perhaps the most interesting thing, though, was that actually these hospital admissions plummeted in March and April 2020 when we went into that first level four lockdown. And during those months, uh, they were at unusual lows, and then they rose again sharply mid-year when we kind of came out of lockdown. So has NZME acknowledged the inadequacy of Reti's graphs? Well, kind of. I don't. I, no one on high has, but the story has been pulled. Reti's column has been pulled from the Herald site, um, syndicated from the Northern Advocate, which is an NZME paper, onto the Herald site. I mean, they all get loaded into the same online back end. Sorry, this is getting a bit technical. But, I mean, the story's been pulled down, and people in the Herald's data team have acknowledged uh, that the graphs that Reti used were wrong. So Chris McDowell of the... Oh, so Chris McDowell of the Herald Starter team said they were poor and misleading graphs, and his colleague uh, Keith Ng also acknowledged they were inaccurate and that they wouldn't have been printed or gone online if someone from the data team had seen them prior to publication. So, well, the obvious question is why didn't someone from the, I'm going to do it again to you, data team see them? <laughs> yeah, uh, well... The way that Ng phrases it on Twitter, it's possible that very few people saw the column before it went up. And this was one of, he just said, it's one of the weekly columns that Reti writes for The Advocate. It gets cross-published on The Herald. And in Keith's words, it's rare for the column to have graphs or graphs or anything of that nature that needs checking. So it went unchecked. And so he recognizes that's a bit of a process failure. And this is by no means his fault, not Keith's fault, but... I think the incident highlights again just how little scrutiny some media outlets give to their opinion sections. And, I mean, these sections always have controversial stuff in them. That's part of the territory. But lately we've also had just a regular supply of assertions that are just objectively untrue. So late last year, for instance, Richard Richard Preble wrote that the Pfizer vaccine wanes so fast that he may have no protection against COVID despite being double jab five months ago. That's just not true. Studies show he actually had 47% protection against infection after six months and 90% protection against hospitalization. So, I mean, I think that we can agree after Parliament was occupied for sort of 25 days that getting it right on vaccinations is pretty important. And I mean, these kinds of things just sneak through when no one fact checks opinion pieces. And I've spoken about this before, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I think that many of our media organisations could profit from uh, better curating and editing their opinion sections, because uh, at the moment it seems like they're seen more of as a, as a kind of a, a click vortex and as a vital part of the news operation, which deserves care the same way as reporting does. Yeah, and Hayden, this, this story really adds to the ongoing debate that we've had about mental health during the pandemic. Isn't it? I mean, kind of another bit of a bugbear of, of mine, but I mean, it's kind of another example of someone using these kind of thinly sourced, pretty flimsy allegations about mental health as a political football to prove a political point about COVID. And that's the context of this piece, Reddy is trying to argue that New Zealand's low death rate from COVID is insufficient as a measure of pandemic success. And the decision to highlight mental health as his sort of uh, alternate factor it puts him in step with a squadron of commentators over the last couple of years. I'm sure you can think of them. There was News Talk's Kate Hawksby who talked about mental health as a shadow pandemic that's bigger than COVID. I mean, COVID's killed 6 million people around the world now. So, I mean, that seems pretty spurious to me. There was also, I mean, Damien Grant, he talked about 
uh, COVID's emotional toll on business owners. Uh, you know, there's kerfuffle over a viral anonymous tweet in June 2020 that claimed there were six suicides a day during lockdown. That wasn't true, but it got attention from Judith Collins and then Privacy Commissioner John Edwards. I mean, I interviewed the Mental Health Foundation Chief Executive Sean Robinson on this topic back in October last year, and this is a snippet of what he had to say then. I've, I've actually been quite angry at uh, some of the people who clearly have a political agenda around ending lockdowns who have quite, I think, you know, insincerely tried to link mental health and suicide rates to the lockdowns as an argument to sort of say the strategy of lockdowns is terrible and we should change it. Now, that's about lockdown specifically, but I mean, COVID mitigation measures have also sort of been cited as this sort of uh, uh, sort of bane on mental health. Uh, Robinson pointed out that suicide stalled or diminished over lockdowns. Uh, that's not to say there's no mental health impacts from these restrictions. I mean, he also pointed to a general feeling of low well-being, but the data is at best complicated. It's hard to discern, and I think that the strategy of cherry-picking or manipulating mental health data to make political points about COVID mitigation is pretty risable. This is people's, you know, this is people's lives. This is their minds. I mean, this is, uh, I think that the media should really exercise pretty greater caution when making these kinds of conclusions or printing the opinions of people making these conclusions. And this is what uh, Sean Robinson had to say on that topic. Some journalists are fantastic. Some journalists are really good. They think hard. They want to look at the whole picture. Others in the media, quite frankly, are lazy and they use simplistic tropes, almost unthought through reactions to mental health and then sort of put simplistic views of mental health together with simplistic views of COVID-19 and come up with stupid, simplistic answers. Mm, not holding yeah, I'm sure that there. would. No, he wasn't. I, uh, that was Sean Robinson October last year. I'm sure that would apply to politicians writing columns as well. Well, that leads us on to the subject that I was talking about earlier and one that you're going to bring up now, and that is uh, political bias within the media. And this uh, is about an exercise in transparency from the Herald's editors. And I'm putting exercise in transparency in inverted commas. Yeah, I mean, kind of laudable in a way, right? So, you know, as you mentioned, and as our feedback shows, there's pretty low trust in the media right now, and that's been exacerbated in a way by the $55 million Public Interest Journalism Fund, or PIJF for short, which a lot of people say is corrupting the media and compelling it to print pro-Labor content. And so in that context, the Herald's trio of top editors, Mariana Alexander, Murray Kirkness, and Shane Curry decided to front up to their readers last week to answer questions about the true impact of the PIJF and trust in media in general, including their political bias, as you say. Mm, how did it go? Uh, well, it, it was pretty heated, I would say. Um, I can imagine. I I, I'm not sure that they, they, they convinced anyone, to be honest. I mean, a lot of the exchanges basically amounted to accusation and kind of rote denial. I mean, just an example of one of these exchanges, a reader said the Herald had been giving the government a sweet ride in line with the advent of the PIJF, and that was just flatly rejected by Kirkness. He said, it's our job to hold the powerful to account, and we'll continue to ask tough questions and pursue answers to them. And I mean, I mean that's sort of like a journalism 
cliche generator bot in a way, isn't it? I mean, these kinds of exchanges kind of made up the bulk of the chat where basically people said they don't trust the media and put various points on that to them and sort of got these kind of hackneyed denials. But I, I think there was some light that was shed. I mean, from Shane Curry in particular, he, he expanded on that a little bit more about why he doesn't think that they're going to be biased in favor, the, favor of the government because of the PIJF. And one of the things he cited was the ethical bent of his workforce, particularly its parliamentary press gallery. He said, if any of our journalists sense we were being influenced in any way, shape or form, there'd be a walkout. I think that's true. I just don't think it's going to convince anyone who already doesn't trust in journalists. Um, uh, but he also pointed to, and I think this is probably more convincing, economic imperatives behind maintaining independence, right? So, you know, an independent newsroom, he said, pursuing stories of public interest is critical to ensure our business survives and our newsroom thrives. And I guess the implication there is that, you know, if you do cave into your funders, you lose credibility. And if you lose credibility, you eventually lose your readership. And I mean, I would have liked to see longer explanations on these issues, but I think they're probably kind of hampered by the sheer volume of feedback that they were getting and the sheer deluge of accusations of bias. I mean, at one point in the discussion, it kind of seems to have started getting to them. And a reader called Evan pointed out that the PIJF is transparent. You can see exactly what it's funding, and it amounts to 2% of total media revenue. So it's not exactly going to sway the entire direction of the media. And uh, Mariana Alexander wrote a one-line response. Thanks for bringing some common sense to the party, Evan. So, I mean, palpable relief there from uh, her. Uh, I mean, having said that, good on them for fronting up. Um, I would note one slightly strange thing about this. Um, it was a premium chat, so it was for subscribers only. You had to pay. That's pretty ironic, isn't it, to put an exercise in transparency behind a paywall? Yeah, and you, you can kind of see why they did it in a way, even, even I mean, given the... the the sort of vitriol that they got even from paying subscribers. I mean, paywalling the chat means you're more likely to get engaged in thoughtful news consumers and it kind of adds to your selling proposition as well, right? You know, if you're paying up for premium, you're getting better access to the influential people at the Herald, right? Uh, but it kind of does fit uncomfortably with the, a, the theme of the chat transparency, but also, you know, the public interest journalism fund, and one of its bedrock principles is that the stuff it commissions has to be free for everyone, so it's kind of odd to limit a chat about it to the people who can pay for news. And it also kind of means your audience, right, is the people that are already paying for, for news. So, so they're not going to be the most distrustful of news. They're not going to be really the people that you're targeting with this chat. They're, they're already trusting the news enough to pay for the Herald Premium. They also got questions, about, the Herald got questions about its alleged political bias towards national as well, didn't they? They did they did so i mean that's this is something that your your listener obviously highlighted as well all those columns I've only got said, one listener you know, yeah exactly <laughs> your one listener says yes. there's an overwhelming number of this was alfred of the herald as well making the same point he said there's an overwhelming number of right-wing columns from matthew hooden stephen joyce richard preble and then the news talk stable mike hosking barry sober heather de plissy ellen uh and mariana alexander responded responded that, look, we get criticism from both the left and the right, and she said, it feels about right to me when we get equal criticism from those from the left and right. Well, by doing that, they're just really promoting their their own radio station, News Talk ZB. It's in the same stable. But do you think uh, what you've just said is, is a good line of defence? Look, I, I, it's a very common refrain from editors, and I used to spout it myself, and, and on reflection, I have to say I am not 
a huge fan of this line of defense at all. And I think, I just don't think it's particularly useful for news organizations to be trying to triangulate a position that equally annoys fans of Russell Brown and Kiwi blog or bomber Bradbury and whale oil. You know, I mean, for one thing that makes centrism their default ideological position, right? I mean, and that might be fine in an environment where the two sides of the political spectrum are roughly equally reasonable on all points. But, I mean, that's just not always the case, right? And there are plenty of examples throughout history where a newspaper adopting a position in roughly the center of two dominant parties would be seen as morally abhorrent. I mean, <laughs> to use some extreme examples, you know, slavery in the U.S. or Germany in the 1930s, for instance. I mean, even in recent times, we've seen in places like the U.S., one political party swinging far further away from reality than the other. And if you're talking about, you know, trying to place your uh, newspaper in an ideological position where you get equal criticism from Republicans and Democrats. You'd sort of be saying, you know, the election was stolen from Donald Trump, but also Joe Biden hasn't done enough to cancel student debt. And sort of only one of those is based in any kind of, you know, the real world. And I mean, I'm not saying a similar phenomenon is happening here. By any means, National and Labour are much more uh, middle of the road and attached to the real world than the parties in America. Uh, but I think the point remains, my point is really that, that facts and the truth don't sit on an artificial kind of culturally created political continuum between left and right. And yet when you're trying to calibrate your newspaper's position according to that continuum, that can be a fool's errand. I just think, here's my thing, like a much greater, much better question than are we right or left is are we right or wrong? And um, in other words... Is our reporting hewing as close to the truth as possible? Are the opinions that we're publishing well-argued, based in fact, and shedding more light than hate? And I really think that when you're assessing your newspaper's performance, that's a much better way of doing it than sort of a straw poll of feedback from your most partisan readers. Yep, no, I totally agree with you there. And this is a subject we could talk about forever, but uh, time's up, I'm afraid. So thank you very much, Hayden. I'd like that topic to continue at some point. Uh, appreciate your time tonight. Hey, thank you so much for having me.